What I'm going to do <coughs> is talk a little bit about St. Paul's time in Jerusalem. And of course, you'll find out the prophets are right. They nail him. And he knew that. And uh, then I want to talk about how he relates the gospel <coughs> to the uh, civil leaders that he appears before. And I think it's a huge lesson for us in our, uh, in our personal evangelism and in our outreach on behalf of the parish. And then I'm going to skip, there's a big shipwreck on the way to Rome, and I'm going to skip that. I mean, it's, there's evangelism that goes on there, but I just, I want to show how he ends his, his lifetime of ministry at the end of uh, the book of Acts. So that'll abbreviate it a bit, and I think I can get through that much of it without too much of a problem. So we'll pick up, <coughs> thank you, we'll pick up in... Uh, Acts chapter 21, uh, verse, uh, verse 26. <clears throat> then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, which is a reference to his relationship to the law, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days uh, were almost ended, that is of the time of purification, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on them. We live in a time when it's, uh, it's really cool to be civil to one another. And of course in the first century, this atmosphere did not exist at all. And uh, the Lord said, you know, work while it is day, for night comes when no man can work. St. Paul did most of his work, so to speak, at night. You get what I mean by that. In other words, there was hand-to-hand -hand combat over the preaching of the gospel. And today, God has given us, I think, a phenomenal window of opportunity. Here in America, the, the watchword of the day is pluralism. And, uh, you know, the, the new code word is diversity. And it's really cool to be diverse. And I think we can use this atmosphere to a great advantage. And um, uh, why do I say that? You know, most people know there's something wrong with a country that has 30,000 Christian denominations in it. I mean, if you have even a cursory knowledge of the scripture, you know that the Lord started one church. And uh, this thing has been shattered in our day. And just the fact we walk on the scene as the original church. And, uh, you know, for all of the struggles orthodoxy has had and has, uh, given the various jurisdictions in America, which was really an accident, nobody sat down seditiously and planned that out. It was just the, it was the um, phenomena of immigration from all these different countries. But nonetheless, you know, we share the same faith with one another, the same worship with one another, the same form of church government with one another. And uh, I don't think it's going to be a huge step to administrative unity. Uh, but that day isn't here yet. But nonetheless, you know, we're, as Orthodox, we're tight with one another. And uh, I would think, you know, for an onlooker, that would be wonderfully attractive. So, um, 
My point is, there's almost no cost today to being a Christian. And uh, let's, let's, rather than kick back and get lazy, let's use that atmosphere, use that opportunity. Because it may be, even in some of our lifetimes, that that, that whole atmosphere will change. So now is the accepted time. <clears throat> so the, uh, the Jews came down from Asia Minor. Now we're, we're in Jerusalem at the temple, okay? And they cried out in verse 28, <clears throat> Men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law, and against this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, <clears throat> and the people ran together and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors of the temple were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions, this is the leader of the garrison now, and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. In other words, even the crowd wasn't united. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded Paul to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after crying out, away with him. It's almost a... a Reproduction of the crucifixion, isn't it? When men hate God, they'll go to almost any length for violence. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? That's nothing new, is it? <laughs> Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs of the barracks and motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great silence, and he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. Now look, look at the approach he takes here. Men and brethren, <clears throat> Men and, or brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in Hebrew, they kept all the more silent. And then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. He had studied in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the great rabbis of the day. He taught me according to the strictness of our Father's law and was zealous toward God as all you are today. It was the wrong kind of zeal, but they were zealous. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren. And I went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. 
Now it happened, and <clears throat> here's what I want you to see, because this will happen now repeatedly. In the Baptist church, we called it a personal testimony. And as Paul now is out with the people, he shifts gears <clears throat> from his quote-unquote apologetic approach. Remember, in that one section we studied, we called it Old Testament 101. He went through the Old Testament and proved that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Son of God. Here, he takes a little different tact. And any of us can do this. Now, granted, I don't suppose anyone here has had a conversion quite as, as dramatic as, as St. Paul did. But you know, that really doesn't matter. The fact is, each of us has a story to tell. And it's our own story, our own encounter with Christ, our own experience in the church, our own struggles as Christians. And brothers and sisters, this communicates to people more than just about anything else you can do, unless you're just a, an incredibly gifted orator. Everyone loves to hear someone else's story. I still do quite a bit of speaking on the secular college campus. <clears throat> and in my uh, role as the chaplain of SAE, the fraternity, I virtually have any SAE house in America open to me. And whenever I go, what I do is, is tell about how I met Jesus Christ and how he changed my life. And uh, guys are, are really open to listening to that. And then when we get into the Q&A, and they'll ask questions about being a Christian, then I spend a little more time on some of the, the doctrines of the faith. But I find for an opener, there's nothing more powerful than your personal experience with the Lord. And it, again, it does not have to be dramatic. As a matter of fact, loosen this. Sometimes overly dramatic testimonies are a turnoff because people can't identify with it. But if you had a, a very simple and quiet and uh, non-eventful conversion, that's the kind of conversion that 95% of the people have. So they will identify with you. And uh, I would really urge you to think through your experience in a way that you can share it with other people. Well, let's see what he does. In verse 6 of chapter 22, <clears throat> Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. And of course, he was on a mission now to wipe out Christians. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And by the way, the original dialogue between the Lord and St. Paul is in Acts chapter 9. So he's essentially repeating what Jesus said to him in Acts 9. That's why if you've got a red letter version of the Bible, it's in red letters. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And I'm sure many of you have heard this application, but the fact is, <clears throat> Paul didn't lay a hand on Christ. I mean, he was ascended. He was speaking from heaven. But you see, if you persecute the body of Christ, you're persecuting Christ personally. And that's, that's what the Lord was communicating to him. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and they were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? 
And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, <clears throat> being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. In other words, he was struck blind, and he had to take the hand of his companions to get into town. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, and this is so moving, because in, in the Acts 9 dialogue, Ananias doesn't want to see Paul. He knows good and well who he is. He's there to, to snuff out Christians. And so when the Lord commands Ananias to receive him, Ananias argues for a little bit, because this man is, is anti-Christian. He's a hater of Christians. And yet, with all of that background, what are the first words St. Paul ever heard a Christian say to him? Brother Saul. What a lesson in, in loving our enemies. Once Ananias was clear that this was God's will, he had to treat him as a brother. And the first words Paul ever heard a Christian preach were brother, or would say to him personally were brother Saul powerful. Brother Saul, receive your sight. <clears throat> and at that same hour, I looked up at him, and then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one, who of course is Christ, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Isn't that good news? Calling on the name of the Lord. And it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. And I saw him, Christ, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue... Um, I, am, I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to, and I'll drop in the words, preach the gospel to the Gentiles. <clears throat> There's one other thing I wanted to say here. Oh, <clears throat> Ananias, of course, was a godly man. He was a prophet in Damascus. He lived on the street called Straight. <clears throat> Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. I thought Jerusalem was, and I was wrong. Uh, Damascus is the, the oldest continuously inhabited city of the world. Several years ago, Father Gordon and I had the joy of being there for the consecration of uh, His Grace Bishop Dimitri, who, is, who was brought up, by the way, in Palestine. And uh, <clears throat> we were invited to be a part of his entourage when he was uh, elevated to the Episcopacy. Our patriarch today lives on the street called Straight, the same street that Ananias lived on. It's an old cobblestone street. I mean, it is straight. <laughs> goes all the way through town. Ananias, interestingly enough, in the extra-biblical records of the church, goes on to be the first bishop of Damascus. Isn't that great? The man that, that 
a baptized Paul. The church there, the patriarchal church, is St. Mary's. And in St. Mary's is a beautiful old marble altar at which St. John of Damascus served the divine liturgy back in the 800s. I mean, it's just, the history of this place is incredible. And if you ever get a chance to go, I would really encourage you to do it. But in this one chance to preach to the crowd, what he does is he tells what Jesus Christ has done for him. And uh, he'll do this a couple other times, and then I want to point to those places for you. So we learn from this <clears throat> that one of the great methods, if you will, or ways to present the gospel is not just giving the scriptural passages concerning Christ, and that's vitally important, but also to talk about what it is that he has done for us. Um, let me turn to one other spot here where this is done just to underscore the importance of it. <clears throat> now, in, verse, in chapter 26, if you'd turn there, he appears before King Agrippa. In other words, this is a series of appeals that he's going through to see if he can beat the rap of, um, of being captured. And in uh, chapter 26, he appears before King Agrippa, and it says, Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Notice here, and if you think back to some of those other conversations, wherever he can, he compliments his listener. It's a wonderful way to approach people. In other words, you know, some evangelism is very what I call polemic, where, where this guy's over here and you're over here and you're clashing with each other. And occasionally I believe there's a, there's a place for that. But I think more normally to take the approach that St. Paul takes and uh, find some ways you can commend the person you're trying to bear witness to. Like, Joe, <clears throat> I really appreciate your sincerity in wanting to know the truth. You know, and that's not, that's not blowing smoke at people. If the person is sincere, commend him for it. You may be talking to a Christian from another background who's got a wonderful knowledge of the scripture, and you might say to him, you know, Susie, I really admire the knowledge that you have of the New Testament. That, I'm impressed by that. And, and that way you can, wherever possible, get on their side, as opposed to just constantly facing off in this more of a confrontational approach. And St. Paul certainly does that here with King Agrippa. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise God made to our fathers. In other words, the very thing they taught us to look for is Pharisees, that is, Christ, now I'm being nailed for this. In other words, you know, 
I found what I was looking for. I, was, I found what they taught me from the law. I found what the prophets predicted. I remember some years ago, I was back at Dallas Seminary. And I, I had such a good experience there in, in that year that I was there. They really do teach you the Bible. The, the interpretation is not orthodox. But they get your nose in the book and they teach you how to study the Bible. I'm still grateful, you know, for that background. And uh, the fact that I'm orthodox has called, you know, caused no small stir among that community. Because uh, from Dallas Seminary to orthodoxy is just about as far as you can get on the Christian spectrum. The whole thing there is knowing the Bible. Um, <clears throat> very little emphasis on church. You go to church because it's a good witness to the people you're trying to reach. But, but that anything special happens there uh, is just not believed. I mean, basically, the, the, the Dallas Seminary type church is, is a Bible lecture hall. In fact, often what we call the nave, you know, upstairs where the people sit, they call the auditorium, which is the listening post. And uh, listening is part of it, but it's not all of it. Uh, we, we see God, we hear him speak, and that is the listening part. We smell the presence of heaven in the, in the uh, incense. We touch and taste and see that the Lord is good. So worship involves everything we are, not just our ears. And um, so consequently, the fact I'm orthodox is, is somewhat troubling there. And that day I said to them, I said, you know what? You guys have the right Savior. You have the right Bible. And now you need the right church. And they said, but th this seems so far off from what you were taught here. I said, it's because you taught me the Bible that I was drawn to the church that gives us the Bible. The people that wrote it were the first Orthodox. And uh, I've had some really you know, good conversations there, and I'm always glad for an open door to go back. <clears throat> so in verse 6 he says now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers you're nailing me for the very thing they were teaching me to look for and that was the Messiah <clears throat> to this promise our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain for this for this hope's sake King Agrippa I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible to you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, that is, when the Christians I captured were put to death, I helped convict them. I helped send them to the gallows. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign countries. I drove them out of town. And then he recounts his experience on the road to Damascus before King Agrippa, as he did earlier before that military leader. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, 
Along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and now he quotes a little more of what the Lord said than he did the time before. But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose. He gets commissioned right at his conversion. To make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. To open their eyes in order that they might turn, that, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me, that is in Christ. That's the Lord speaking. What a marvelous summary of what it is God seeks to do for each one of us. To open our eyes. You know, we pray <clears throat> each Sunday before the reading of the gospel that God will enlighten the eyes of our heart or the eyes of our understanding so that we may that we may comprehend his gospel proclamations and uh, that's what Jesus promised Paul this day that uh, he would be used of God to open the eyes of unbelievers in order to turn them from darkness to light we're, we're translated St. Paul says in Colossians from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We change kingdoms. From the power of Satan to the power of God. <clears throat> that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And in the process of it all, we, our sins are washed away, we're given new life, and we have an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. So the Lord commissioned him on the very day that he was converted. <clears throat> Therefore, King Agrippa, <coughs> I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting of repentance. And now he's rehearsing <clears throat> for them the ministry that he's had all these years. In other words, King, not only was I commissioned to do it, um, by the grace of God, I did do it. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. <clears throat> Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both the small and great. And boy, he had. I mean, uh, from demon-possessed people to kings. <clears throat> saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. That the Christ or the Messiah would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and light to the Gentiles. And uh, 
It says, as he thus made his defense, Festus, who was one of the cohorts there, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced <clears throat> that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in the corner. And then he just, he asks the question, <clears throat> don't be afraid. In fact, in sales, they call it the ask, don't they, those of you that are in sales. You present the product, and then you do the ask. You ask them to buy. And so St. Paul compliments Agrippa before Festus, because he's, he's confident Agrippa understands, and then he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And then King Agrippa said to Paul, just one of the most tragic answers in the whole Bible, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. I call that the tragedy of the might of men. Can you imagine if you had turned Jesus down where you'd be today? I mean, the, the thought is dark, isn't it? And King Agrippa, King Agrippa came really close but he didn't cross the line. <clears throat> and St. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So don't ever be afraid to ask the question, do you believe? Are you willing to commit your life to Christ? Are you willing to become a catechumen catechum in the church? And, you know, and I don't know exactly what you do here, whether you do an inquirer's course and then catechism or go right into catechism, but you know the pattern here. Invite people to come. And if you can, go with them. I know it's hard if you're married and have kids. You know, the last thing you need is another night out. But maybe even the first week. Say, let me go with you the first week. I want to make sure that, that you know everyone that's there and just try to make it as easy as you can for them and as comfortable as you can. But it's really important to ask. When we were in Albania, <clears throat> um, you know, Father G and Father Harold will identify with this. We, we knew so well how to do all this as Protestants. And of course, that was back in the days when, you know, I call it decisional salvation. I'm all for making decisions, but if all salvation is as decisional, we fall uh, markedly short. So we had this meeting. It was the, one, the Wednesday night meeting in this town called Skodra, and that's where we met in the hulk of this church that was being built. And people, I mean, we'd been on television, and they'd rebroadcast the interview, and so the place was standing room only. And I hadn't planned ahead that night how I would close. But my theme, my, my message was, who is Jesus Christ? And I sought to answer three questions. Who is he? What did he say or promise? 
and what did he do? And people say, now that you're not using the four laws any longer, do you have a capsule? That's my capsule. Who is Jesus Christ? What did he say? What, what did he promise us? And what did he do for us? And of course, as Orthodox, we always start with who he is. Uh, most Protestant presentations start with what he does, the work of Christ. But uh, the scriptures start with the person of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I start way back in eternity past. In fact, sometimes I'll say, you know, most <clears throat> times that you hear about Christ, uh, you start in Bethlehem. But the church starts in eternity past. The scripture starts in eternity past. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And I talk about that in the beginning there existed with God the Father, his eternally begotten Son, and his Holy Spirit. There never was a time when the Father was not, there was never a time when the Son didn't exist, and there was never a time the Holy Spirit didn't exist. Though the Son is born of the Father eternally, and the Spirit proceeds eternally from him. And thus, the one Godhead is revealed to us in three persons. And then I talk a little about some of the Old Testament prophets predicting that he would come, and then how 2,000 years ago God became man. And I, I talk about what we call the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God. And uh, then I shift to what he did and to what he said. Well, that night... <coughs> I had, not, I had not decided, I hadn't even thought ahead. You know, here are a lot of unbelievers. You know, the two leaders of the two mosques in town were right where you two are sitting. I mean, we were that close. And uh, they didn't look up a lot. Uh, they looked down quite a bit. And to be honest, I kind of felt for them. You know, they, here they were, Christians surrounding them. And uh, they sure got an earful that night of Jesus. And to be honest, they need an earful of Christ. Well, I got to the end, and I said, tonight, I'm going to close with a prayer. And I'm going to invite you, if you've never committed yourself to follow Jesus Christ before, that you would do so tonight. And uh, then, tonight, if you commit your life to Christ and to follow him and to, to learn of him, I'm going to ask you to come back tomorrow night. And there's going to be a, a brief Vesper service. We, it's our evening prayers. And then tomorrow night, the instruction of the people that want to pursue Christ, that want to be baptized into him, that want to be part of his holy church, we're going to ask you to come tomorrow night. I had never done that kind of an invitation before. But I was darned if I was just going to say a prayer and let it go with that. Uh, you know, that, that isn't follow-through. <clears throat> so we invited them to come the next night. And by the next night, we were already in the next town. <clears throat> and two days later, the priest came that, that is pastors, that church that's being built. And he said, Father, you, he said 45 people showed up for the first night of instruction. Incredible. I, I get goosebumps when I talk about it. You know, <coughs> even if, if half of them follow through, rather than just having people make decisions and go their merry way, 
We're, we're building the church because you can't follow Christ apart from his church. Even John Calvin quoted one of our fathers when he says, he that does not have the church for his mother does not have God for his father. And uh, so the most natural thing to do when we ask people to commit their lives or ask them to place their trust in Christ is in the same breath to ask them to become part of the church. Because really, you can't have the one without the other. Well, <clears throat> let me skip down. <coughs> it sound great on the tape. Sorry, all you people listening on the tape. Paul ends up being sent to Rome. And there's a shipwreck on the way. That's at the end of chapter 27. And miracles happen there. And they're stranded for a while on the island of Malta. And then in verse 11 of Acts 28, they end up in Rome. It says, after three months, we sailed an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island of Malta. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. And from there, we circled around. And one day, uh, after one day, the south wind blew. And the next day, we came off to Puccioli, where we found brothers. There were Christians there. And we were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And uh, I'll skip down to verse 17. And it came to pass after three days of being in Rome that, the, that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. He still hadn't given up on them. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hand of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. <clears throat> Not that I had anything of which to <clears throat> accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called you to see you and speak with you. Because for the hope of Israel, which is Christ, I am bound with this chain. In other words, he doesn't say, you guys. He says, our people, our fathers. Uh, I think it's really appropriate if you're from an evangelical Christian background or a Protestant background. When you talk with them, talk about the things we learned together as Protestants and how important those things were rather than, you know, you and us. Identify with your listener. He does it again here with, with the Jews. Then they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you nor have any of the brethren who came, reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think concerning this sect, for we know that it is spoken against everywhere. Not only was the Lord popular, but uh, the popularity was negative. <clears throat> so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him uh, at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law and Moses and the prophets, the law of Moses and the prophets, from morning till evening. He made a day of it. 
And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. I love the honesty of the scripture. You know, often in evangelism, you only report the good stuff. Do you notice that? Thousands are converted. Yeah, and, but what else happened? You know, multiplied thousands rejected it. And the scriptures, thank God, uh, record both. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Israel. Um, through, I'm sorry, through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and shall not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, that is, turn to God, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these things, these words, the Jews departed, and had a great dispute among themselves. And again, Paul does not close with a feel-good. He closes with a warning to those that disbelieved. And uh, what, a, what a life. Now, the last <clears throat> couple verses are just loaded with meaning. Then Paul dwelt in Rome two years in his own rented house, and he received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. <clears throat> St. Paul had a two-year finale to his ministry. And, of course, after this, and it's not recorded in the scripture, uh, he was martyred in Rome, and, and most people set the date at about 65 A.D. So he finishes up his years in Rome. And uh, this was likely, <coughs> those last two sentences likely record a time at about 62 or 63 A.D. So he has about two more years before his martyrdom. And, uh, you know, here's a man, you know, in shipwreck often, uh, sleepless nights, you know, that, that whole litany of things he goes through, I think, in 2 Corinthians. And, you know... <laughs> He, he just didn't put his feet up and watch TV. Uh, I hope none of us really retire. You know, certainly we're slowing down. I, I, I know the feeling. But he spent the last two years, doors open, receiving people in, talking with them about Christ, and uh, preaching to them the kingdom of God. And what a way to end. So here's this great apostle to the Gentiles who started out as a murderer of Christians, the least likely guy in town to be a Christian. And yet he goes on to turn the world upside down and uh, arguably outside of the Lord himself, the best evangelist and missionary that our church has ever known. So there in a nutshell is the work of uh, St. Paul on his <clears throat> four missionary journeys. And uh, again, my goal has been first to motivate you, secondly to uh, cause you to think about what you can do here uh, to bear personal witness to Christ 
to be involved in the next mission that St. John's uh, mothers and uh, to set your sights on the, the joy of the harvest that, that is before us. Let me say a couple practical things and then I'll <clears throat> quit and we'll have some questions. <clears throat> I'm well aware that not everybody has the gift of evangelism. And uh, there was a time in my life that I thought everybody should have it. And uh, I just, I don't believe that. Uh, we talked a little bit yesterday about the gifts of the Spirit. And there are some very evangelistic gifts like preaching and teaching and evangelism itself. And then there are a lot of serving gifts. Like there's a gift of helps. That wasn't mentioned in Romans 12. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. We talked about the gift of administrations. There's a gift of hospitality. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And um, not everybody is, is an evangelist. So you say, well, what can I do? You know, I love God. I really want to see people's souls saved. Uh, the Bible says, he that winneth souls is wise. But I'm just not real good at, <clears throat> at talking to people or fielding questions. I don't think well on my feet. And by the way, the more you do this, the better you become. But in the interim, what can you do? Number one, <clears throat> the oldest fashioned way of all in doing outreach, doing evangelism, is to bring people to church. Bring them to church. And uh, most of them won't like it the first time, but bring them anyway. And uh, that's a, just the most natural entree. Um, sometimes people <clears throat> feel more comfortable bringing them to a special event or a lecture. We have a thing we do at our parish <clears throat> called uh, the St. Nicholas Party. And it happens every December, early in the month, as close to the feast day of St. Nicholas as we can get it. And, uh, you know, Father uh, Nicholas Spire sometimes plays St. Nicholas. And what, it's a family, it's a fun night for the family. <clears throat> we get tons of visitors out to that event. And um, that's sort of a middle point <coughs> between a full liturgical service and nothing at all. So you bring them, you get them in the doors of the church. In our church, we're not blessed with a two-story building like you are. We hope to be one day, but so far the, the city fathers have not yet given us the green light. So our family room is also the, the sanctuary, and the bishop has approved this that kind of thing. We actually face toward the back of the church for family night because in the front, of course, is the altar and the icons. But it serves to get them through the doors of the church. Invite people to church. If possible, bring them, pick them up, and... Uh, make available to them the, the glory of what you have here. Secondly, literature. <clears throat> you know, I, you, some of you know I'm deeply involved with Conciliar Press. I am still amazed at how literature affects people. Uh, there are just an awful lot of people that are Orthodox today because they read the Orthodox Church by Timothy Ware. Or they read our story, Becoming Orthodox. So they read Father Konyaras, Introducing the Orthodox Church. There's a new book out, which I'd like to mention to you, called Thirsting for God. 
and the subtitle is In a Land of Shallow Wells. A former um, Calvary Chapel pastor, Matthew Gallatin, wrote it. He's, a, he, he's an instructor in philosophy now at uh, Northern Idaho College up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And uh, I noticed that there was a copy or two on the back table. I think it's the best evangelism tool we've had in 10 years. And uh, it's a very unusual story. And not only are, <clears throat> are non-Orthodox benefiting from it, but we have a, a small women's monastery in Santa Barbara. And uh, two of the three nuns really are, are basically converts to the faith. One was brought up Orthodox and left and became a Protestant. And she's now come back. So she came back uh, almost like a convert. And then the other woman was a Protestant all her adult life. And uh, uh, toward you know, the late middle age of her life has become Orthodox and is now a nine. And they read it and they said, you know, obviously we're, we're convinced of the faith or we wouldn't be Orthodox. But we learned so much about why we believe what we do from this book. <coughs> And uh, we published it in paperback on purpose because it's, it's half the price of a hardback. So people can uh, buy it and loan it to people or give it away. I like loaning it because when you loan it, you can ask for it back, and then you've got an opportunity to have a conversation. So um, I'd try to get a few copies, loan it out, and ask your friends to read it. I, it's a, and it's a page turner. It's a very interesting book. So uh, that's a wonderful tool. A lot of people, their initial <clears throat> introduction to orthodoxy are those conciliar press booklets. A ton of people have come through the Orthodox Study Bible. And by the way, a ton of Orthodox have stayed in the church because of the Orthodox Study Bible. So uh, that's a good tool. And uh, that's a, a good loan out as well. But literature <clears throat> is just an incredible way to present the gospel if you're not easy talking to people. And even if you are easy, I'd still use it. Father Constantine Nasser, I, have you ever had him up here, Father? Some year. <coughs> this, I think, is the best evangelist priest we've got in the whole archdiocese. Born in Jerusalem. Speaks with an accent. You know, breaks all the rules. He's about, what, 5'6", five, 5'7", five, bald. Uh, just not your, you know, myopic, blue-eyed, former... USC running back evangelist that everybody thinks is the mold here. And Father Constantine carries that pamphlet, uh, uh, the timeline of church history, carries it in his suit breast pocket. He'll get on a plane and he'll pull it out. And he just waits for the guy next to him to say, Father, what's that? And boy, you've got, you got two hours of solid conversation with Father Constantine. And uh, he's taken a parish that was essentially an old-world immigrant parish, and now the majority of the people are converts. And uh, talk about a, a beautiful wedding of cultures. Uh, he's just done a wonderful job. St. Elijah, Oklahoma City, if you're ever on vacation down there, uh, be sure that you uh, schedule in Sunday morning at St. Elijah. Literature. It, it works. Uh, internet. Now, I know there's, there's, there's marginal stuff on the Internet under the guise of orthodoxy, but there's a lot of good orthodox things on the Internet, and uh, uh, people are starting to discover orthodoxy through that venue. And uh, 
you know, would to God more will come. Uh, one place I'd love to see, which we, actually two things, I mentioned one the other night. I'd love to see us do way more on radio. Um, <clears throat> there are occasional Orthodox radio programs around the country. There's a Greek priest right now, Father Chris Metropolis in Florida, who's doing an excellent job with a program, Come Receive the Light. And a lot of his format is interviews. And uh, he's interviewed a wide variety of people. And a lot, he's getting a good listenership, and that program is expanding from city to city. <clears throat> but we need to do way more. I don't know of anything we're doing on TV, and we need to do more on television. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. and then the last thing I'd love to see one of these days are some public gatherings. Uh, the ones that have been done are tremendously successful. There's several, I think there's five Orthodox churches in what's called the Tri-City area uh, in and around Binghamton, New York. And I, I don't remember the name of the other two cities. But for several years now, the first Sunday in June, the churches, with their bishop's blessing, close, and they have a citywide divine liturgy in the city uh, arena, or the civic arena. And they invite a speaker to come in for it, and that's how I know about it, because a few years ago I was asked to come for it. All of the clergy serve together. They have a combined choir, and I'll tell you, it's dynamite. And everybody invites a friend. And uh, the Sunday I was there, the place was packed. Um, the president of InterVarsity, uh, I'm sorry, the staff member for InterVarsity was there. The president of the Council of Churches came, and just a ton of people that were not Orthodox came. And uh, they do this every year. It's apart from Orthodoxy Sunday, because Orthodoxy Sunday, they felt, only got the Orthodox together. And they wanted something that would bring new people in. And interestingly enough, the Sunday I was there, they've got a, um, a minor league hockey team in, uh, in Binghamton. And they play at this arena. <coughs> the year I was there, they just had a killer season and were winning all their games and they were in the playoffs. And uh, had they won the final playoff game, we would not have held them our liturgy. So. <coughs> All the Orthodox in town prayed they'd lose, and they did. <laughs> so we got to have our gathering. It was really successful. I wish this kind of thing would spread from town to town. And uh, there's something about momentum. There really is something about a crowd. That a crowd attracts a crowd. When we were in Romania, because of the limited air schedule there, that <coughs> we were to be there a certain day, we had to fly in two days early to make it because the next two days there were no flights into, uh, into uh, Bucharest. So um, I ended up, and, and the people, Father Gregory Rogers was my teammate there. Uh, I'm sorry, Father David Ogan was my teammate. So we flew in two days early, and I, I didn't know what they would have planned for us. And because they were there, they decided to have an open-air meeting in a town called Alba Ulia. It's a town of, I'm sorry, not Alba Ulia, um, Sarumare. And it's a town of 100,000 people, and the mayor of the city is Orthodox. In fact, 87% of the population of Romania is baptized Orthodox. So they'd done no publicity. 
But uh, they said, you know, if we have an outdoor meeting, there, there will be people that come. And the church <clears throat> owned a several acre plot that was surrounded by these nine and 10 and 12 story apartment buildings that the communists had built during their era. And uh, most all people in these Eastern European countries, by the way, live in apartments. A house is just a luxury that's off the chart. And the few houses I've been in are so much, uh, our homes are just so much nicer. I, I, when I got home, I literally felt guilty putting the key in my door. And uh, we held the meeting in this, in this field. They, they had built a canopy. And under the canopy was a small altar. And they did an evening prayer service there. Well, here, here's how they did it. They had vespers at the cathedral at 6. And then they said, we're going to process from the cathedral. It was about three blocks. Process from the cathedral over to into this field. And then they did a short prayer service there. The reason they wanted to process is to attract a crowd. In Romania, there's nothing to do at night. There's just nothing going on. And uh, so that night, we were, the, we were the only show in town. So as we processed, you could literally see people come out of these apartments and join the procession. And um, so we got there and did this <clears throat> brief service. And then I was asked to give a message. And uh, Father David gave his testimony before I spoke. By the time we got going with our preaching part of this thing, 10 thousand people showed up and uh, you know would the God this kind of thing happens in America uh, it was just it was a marvelous evening so for a meeting that had no schedule that was never called still we got 10,000 people out to it and uh, hopefully one of these days we'll be able to do some of that kind of more mass evangelism here <clears throat> well <coughs> The Lord bless you and uh, use you here to reach out and to bring new people to Christ and new people to the church. Do you want to take a quick break? And then Father G and I will uh, field questions. And if you've got some things you'd like to write down, we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Thank you for your forbearance with me. And uh, sorry I'm not... Mm. Mm.